0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson.
0: I want you to do me a favor. Yeah, sure. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. What? I want you
2: to hit me as hard as you can. Brad Pitt and Edward Norton in
1: Fight Club, which turns 20 this year. This week, we revisit David Fincher's cult satire of consumer capitalism. That review, part of our 9 from 99 series. So we're going to talk about Fight Club. We're going to break the first rule of Fight Club. We're going to break the second rule of Fight Club. But we're going to stick to rule number four, only two guys to a fight. Just the two of us. All right. Just promise to hit me as hard As you can. I can do that. We'll also cull through the Fincher filmography for our top five scenes from the notoriously perfectionist director. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. David Fincher, inarguably, well, I think it's inarguable, one of the best directors working today. He made an inauspicious debut back in 92 with Alien 3, but since then has produced some of the best and some of the best looking films of the past three decades. And that craft is what made this week's top five so challenging. Josh, we're sharing our top five David Fincher scenes.
2: A really tough one. You could have gone you know the greatest hits route obviously the yep. first five that popped in your head mm-hmm. we probably all could name those off pretty
1: quickly that is the route i went is it is okay that a problem
2: no i think that's all right i found a different
1: way in that we'll get to so hopefully that'll bring some variety to our list then. okay that top five plus listeners weigh in on what new movies they'd like to hear us talk about hashtag Rocketman. <sighs> it's all later in the show but first our nine from 99 review of
2: fight club if adam will put that ikea catalog down Like many of you,
0: I was stuck. You want me to deprioritize my current reports? Until you advise of a status upgrade? Make these your primary action items. I couldn't sleep. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. Welcome! I prayed for a different life. Soap. I make and I sell soap. This is how I met Tyler Durden.
3: Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. You okay. Hit me in the ear.
0: It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. <laughs> Can I be next? We just gave it a name. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is Wow, nice. You do not talk about Fight Club. Is that your blood? Some of it, yeah.
1: In the film spotting Slack channel a few days ago, Josh, you made this observation. Interesting that the three ninety nine movies we've done so far all involve. And here's where you used an emoji because you're one of the cool kids. Oh, yeah. Exploding head twists. Indeed, there's a lot of mind blowing going on in our opening trio of nine from ninety nine conversations. In the case of David Fincher's Fight Club, it's almost literal. The movie is bookended, after all, by the image of Edward Norton's unnamed narrator about to pull the trigger on a gun wedged into his mouth. And yes, this will be a spoiler-filled discussion of Fight Club, whose twist comes earlier in its runtime than The Six Senses, but much later than Neo's red pill, blue pill moment with Morpheus in The Matrix. I was all set to dismiss this observation inconsequential as they usually are. (laughs) That's your instinct. Whenever you see something of mine pop up. Exactly. Until I actually rewatched fight club and got to the scene where the narrator, I'll just call him Norton from here on out, finally confronts where exactly his mind has been all movie. This is impossible. This is crazy. He tells Brad Pitt's Tyler Durden upon hearing that he and Tyler are in fact the same person to which Tyler explains people do it every day. They talk to themselves. They see themselves as they'd like to be, which sure reminded me of, I see dead people. They don't know they're dead. Both Norton and Bruce Willis's Malcolm Crow are in such denial that they don't even recognize the obvious fundamental truths about their very existences. Both movies ultimately are about characters coming to terms with their identities because they've only been seeing what they want to see or what they have tricked themselves into seeing in order to give their lives purpose and meaning. I wonder if Fight Club, which is considered a cult classic and was successful in the home video market after a disappointing theatrical run, is the type of film that reflects one's response Back onto the viewer. In other words, does one see what they want to see in fight club, a profound takedown of consumerism run amok or to quote the letterbox musings of film spotting producer, Sam Van Halgren, self-satisfied garbage that itself feels like a product. An indictment of misguided, misdirected, sadomasochistic masculinity or purely misogynistic malarkey blow our minds, Josh what did you see in Fight Club this time? And is it any different than what you saw as a much younger, and let's face it, virile man in
2: 1999? <laughs> wow. You had to go there, huh? Hey, I use emojis. Come on. Does that come for something? Yeah. It's keeping me young. Yeah,
1: it shows how weak you are now.
2: <laughs> well, um, boy, I would add quickly that Neo also, the, the deception is forced upon him, but also fits into your description very well, right? The, this, he's Absolutely. seen what he... What he maybe wants to see, he's a little more self-aware than the characters in the other two films. But these these three movies, I think what sets them apart, makes 99 such a great year, is that they – do have these sort of twists but are so much more than that make the most of them interweave them into the ideas and i would definitely put fight club in that category absolutely held up for me my favorite fincher film will maybe get into a little ranking at some point but it is still at the top without having revisited a lot of them for this show but definitely watching this again and i think it holds up i think it's all of those things i think it if you want to say it is one specific thing mm-hmm. And I won't argue too hard against Sam here because it's not fair. He's not here. But if you want to say it is one specific thing, I think that is discounting the other things it also wants to provoke you into thinking about because – I know there are people who respond with revulsion to this film, and I think that's part of the film's intent on one level. I don't know if it's the ultimate intent of the movie, and that's probably why I still hold it in such high regard. I do see this ultimately as a social critique, but here's the wrinkle, which this isn't something new that I discovered now, but it did hit me harder this time. It's social critique through the lens of, of a very disturbed individual. Mm -hmm. Indeed, an individual who you could maybe describe now in today's terminology as one expressing toxic masculinity. Oh, we'll get that. And so there's a way I can see Fight Club being even more revolting for people Hmm. in 2019 than it was in 1999 when our antennae are up for such things. And- I don't think that changes the fact that the movie is a lot smarter than that and is willing to provoke you to just push you far enough to make you have that revulsion, that reaction to it. Now, the question for me is, is the narrator, is Norton's character suffering from a societal ill or is he a psychopath? And I think if you answer either way to that, you're, you're cutting the movie short mm-hmm. because to my mind, it, it is a combination. It's a portrait of an angry young man who's got some legitimate reasons to be angry. For the sure. critiques of cr- consumerism you know, do hit home. Mm-hmm. I think they're legit. Now, he's also psychologically damaged. This is a really troubled guy. And so the anger expresses itself in destructive and self-destructive ways. When I wrote about it in 99, I said it's a study in a specific psychosis, one brought on by the consumer culture of our modern age. And let me point out, which shocked me, think about that online shopping was not even really a thing in 99. And so we're even more immersed in this. Uh, So again, I understand the dramatic responses to this movie, both positive, which I have, and negative. I think listener Jason Eakin... Summed it up really well on Twitter when there was some back and forth about this film. Hope to see Jason at the film spotting meetup in L.A. later this month. Jason said, the more I watch and think about this film, the more woefully I think it's been misrepresented and misinterpreted by bros and anti-bros alike. Mm -hmm. I think he's dead on. Yeah, Uh, Because one of the disturbing things is that it has been picked up as a mantle for people who see Tyler Durden as a hero. Just the way people – Admire Wall Street for all the wrong reasons. Maybe The Wolf of Wall Street, similarly. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think you can hold that
1: entirely against the film. Mm -hmm. So I want to first say that every film spotting listener who happens to subscribe to the newsletter knows what we're referencing, not only in what I acknowledge in the setup there about Sam's reaction, but the letterboxed ratings that – he and you gave Fight Club. You both watched it before I did. I waited till the last minute as usual. And let's just say there's a very wide gap pretty big, gap. in <laughs> your scores for this <laughs> film. I think Sam giving it only one star. And even my daughter, Sophie, who has never seen Fight Club and has no plans to see Fight Club is disappointed that I'm sitting across from you right now (laughs) instead of Sam and anyone else out there who was really hoping that maybe Sam would be here or I would take Sam's spot and really try to vilify this film and we would go at it Fight Club style. Well, I'm sorry, because that isn't going to happen. I'm much closer to you, even though I actually rank it fifth still among Fincher's films. But that probably does owe more to the fact that I really love those four films ahead of it. I haven't seen Fight Club since 1999 maybe caught a few scenes here and there but definitely hadn't watched it in its entirety and what was the line you had josh about his psychosis being brought on by what consumer culture of our modern age okay. Yeah, absolutely undeniable but i'm gonna say that what really stood out to me this time is what maybe pushed it over the top that element is there but there's another element that i think really sent him into Tyler Durden land and that's what really surprised me this time I expected it truly to not hold up to 2019 scrutiny With regard to the notion of, you said it, toxic masculinity, I kept thinking about the gallons of testosterone that are flowing through all those fight scenes and the gratuitousness, certainly, of some of the violence. I remembered that. And all of my recollections of Helena Bonham Carter Mm -hmm. as Marla were that not only is she the only woman I can remember in the movie, but I thought, isn't she kind of a drag, pretty much, scene to scene? My sense was that the movie felt about her the way I Thought I remember Norton's character feeling about her, which is that she kind of only makes his life miserable. And then it didn't help that we got an email from. A listener named Scott in Corvallis, Oregon, and he said, if you can in any way squeeze it in, listen to some or all of the Bechtel cast episode on Fight Club. The abbreviated version is, while most movies reflect slash reinforce the patriarchy in some ways, Fight Club belongs in that class of movie that just capital H, capital W, hates women. As I recall, it's one of their less funny episodes, partly because they're just so exasperated by the material. I wish I had been able to listen to that. I wish I'd been able to engage with any." other arguments for or against Fight Club, other than kind of bickering with Sam a little bit on Slack. But I just didn't have the time for it. As far as my experience watching it, though, this time, I'll cut to the chase. I was not at all prepared to witness one of the most absurd roundabout movie love stories, because that's what I think this movie ultimately is. It's not an accident that it ends with Norton and Marla holding hands as he says that final line to her. And That's not the key line for me in the movie. The key line for me, which might be the 800th most memorable line in this movie, but it does take us back to this idea of toxic masculinity is when Norton is imploring Marla late in the movie, he's trying to save her. He's come to the realization. He knows what's about to happen, and he's trying to get her on a bus to leave town. And she says, why are you doing this? And he says, because they think you're some kind of threat. And in that context, of course, specifically, they is referring to Project Mayhem, Mm -hmm. which also means Tyler led by, in essence, him, Tyler. They think you're some kind of threat, though, is also how Tyler regards Marla throughout the movie. Think about all the times Tyler says to Norton not to talk about him. Do not discuss him with her ever from the basement in that really memorable scene. He says, this conversation is over and the door shuts. Is this really a movie about abandoning consumerism and figuring out what really matters in life, embracing death, you're not a unique snowflake, and all of those other New Age aphorisms Tyler's always spouting? On some level, sure, I think it is, but I also think it's about the fact that Norton is so terrified of a woman, so terrified of a meaningful relationship with a woman who is his equal, and being intimate and vulnerable with her, that he creates an uber-masculine alter ego Who starts an underground club for men to beat each other up and embarks on a serious domestic terror campaign? Yeah, that's how far he goes. That's the length he goes to exacerbated, surely, by his general dissatisfaction with life and ennui. But that's how far he goes to protect himself from a woman. It's pretty hilarious, actually, if you think about it. And I really responded to how much comedy I found in this film. Oh, a ton of time. comedy.
2: It's very funny. Supporting your point is the fact that Tyler Pitt doesn't show up until after he's already becoming that's what I'm saying with bottom Carter when so, she yeah. shows up and yeah. ruins what he's got. Going. That definitely makes sense. I mean, in a way, what it, what's at the bottom of this? I don't think it's foundational consumerism. It's It's not necessarily even saying that shopping is bad on its own. Terms. It's essentially saying that this is a guy who's trying to fill his need by shopping and it can't do that. Mm -hmm. And society is built around the deception that shopping should work. So that's where he's screwed by society. Mm -hmm. But yes, he is also a little boy, especially when it comes to women. These are all little boys in this movie. Yes. It's like recess. And that's why this movie does not hate women, it shows a lot of men. Who hate women. And the lead character slash characters definitely, if not hate, are deeply uncomfortable mm-hmm. with women and it expresses itself in hateful ways, yeah. I guess you could say. Yeah. And then think about how, you know, how does Pitts Tyler treat Bonham Carter, clearly as a sexual toy. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to talk to her. Once they're done, he's done with her. And so this is Norton's expression of, I guess that's how it's almost like he's play acting another role. Like society has told me I need to buy all this stuff and furnish my condo and then I'll be complete. Society has told me sex is everything. Mm -hmm. I need to find this woman, treat her as a sex object, and that's done. And then when he does start to have other feelings, he can't process them. And it sends him off the deep end. And and I think it's crucial that these early support group scenes get as much time as they do because they provide him with something that all his goods, all his products don't and that's feeling. He feels when he cries with these people even though it's under a a ruse, it's Mm -hmm. under a game. As they say in the movie, and I think there's some truth to this, which is what makes it uncomfortable. He feels something when he's getting the crap beat out of him or other people or he's beating the crap out of other people. When he starts to feel something in relation to Helena Bonham Carter, that's when he goes a little haywire. Again, because this this is a dumb little boy Mm -hmm. in a man's body acting out. I can see why that would be a disturbing movie to
1: watch. I don't think it's an endorsement of that sort of lifestyle. No, I don't either. And 20 years later watching it, that's what really seems so prescient. The consumerism stuff, it's so ubiquitous now that it seems quaint when Tyler early in the film is describing or maybe it's actually the narrator's voice who is describing some of these things. We're going to see someday the Microsoft Galaxy we name. And I was thinking about the Samsung Galaxy. And, of course, this is this is so ubiquitous that watching it in hindsight, it seems almost quaint. But as you said, all of these little boys, the hordes of scared little men lashing out violently online and offline. Is it a surprise that the alt-right's favorite insult is the word snowflake? And they use it in exactly the same way Tyler Durden uses it here. And as you talk about that, that element, what the Norton character is responding to and seeking and trying to get some kind of real feeling, this is what Sam and I were discussing a little bit. I won't Try to convince any non believers that this film being a good satire alone means that it is a good movie, but I do think it is good satire. And the proof for me, at least partly, are these completely antithetical responses to the movie. That you can have such polar opposites means the movie is tapping into something that's fundamentally sound because satire, by definition, isn't just a critique of its target. In order for it to be really effective as satire, there has to be some validity to what is being explored. And Tyler, what he's selling here has some validity to it, despite the fact that we can write off probably just as many statements as ones we can take to heart. But if we don't do that, if the movie doesn't have that, if Polonik as the writer of the book and Jim Oles as the screenwriter working here with Fincher, if they don't give that side and give that validity to it, then it's just toothless and disposable. And who wants that? So we should all, I really think this, male and female, but I'll only speak for myself as a male. We should all see some of ourselves in Norton's character and that longing. And even these poor space monkeys who are desperate for purpose and buying into Tyler's pronouncements. But we should also recognize that the movie, I think by the end, pretty clearly ends up being a repudiation of that proposed purpose and those pronouncements. Well, let's get to the ending. I want to talk about that some more. But but
2: first, uh, this is exactly why a movie like this, I can 100 percent get behind as much as it troubles me in a movie which I already mentioned. And I know we split on The Wolf of Wall Street, mm-hmm. which is also a satire in similar ways mm-hmm. of societal ills in a specific psychopath in different ways, um, I have trouble with is because the Wolf of Wall Street never challenged me. It never made – and this is just my own personal response to it. It never implicated me really in what those guys were doing um, or or who they were. But exactly what you're saying, a lot of Brad Pitt's – phrases and the arguments he's making resonate Mm -hmm. to a degree with me. So then I'm drawn in and I'm conflicted. I've got qualms. I never felt conflicted during the Wolf of Wall Street. I get it. Uh, They were always sleazy clowns, right, that we were supposed to laugh at. It got tiresome. Here, because Norton has these understandable um, things he's struggling with and dealing with before we realize how broken he really is Mm -hmm. and we have more sympathy for him, I was more seduced by Fight Club. And when you're more seduced... It's more provocative. Yes. And that's kind of the experience. Okay, so the ending. Here's what I wanted Mm -hmm. to ask you, because I had a bit of a – this is where I differ from my 99 review, which I think I have a phrase in there calling it redemptive in a way. And I think on the surface, it does sort of play that way. As you mentioned, they're holding hands. Um, Yes, this plot has still gone forward. They're watching the buildings – crash Mm -hmm. um so there's there's definitely you know it's not what you would call a happy ending but it struck me then as redemptive here i I felt it read to me as even more of a final statement on how broken and wrongheaded and and just plain deranged tyler durden the norton character Mm -hmm. is my reading this time is that he he succeeds he kills himself He's dead. And in those last moments, it's his desperate, last gasp vision of how all of this might come together. He can still get her, but he still is – this vision of taking down these bank buildings is happening. And it's kind of – it's similar to First Reformed to me. And like you're not sure if the guy's dead or alive. You're not sure if what he's seen is reality or vision or hope or afterlife. This time I read it as – He had completely broken, killed himself. And the last thing he was thinking about was that this worked and I still get the girl.
1: Very interesting and very provocative. And you might be right. I'll confess I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about it, but I sort of like that it hits two notes at once, which is in some ways it's a depressing ending because the act that he was hoping to thwart there at the end does happen Mm -hmm. at the same time we have that moment that. That touching, that embrace finally, and that, that bit of honesty when he says to her, you've met me at a really interesting time in my life. Yeah. I really read that as sort of an acquiescence, a giving himself over to the moment, recognizing that it's not a happy ending. He couldn't stop this from happening, that his psychosis did push this too far and had consequences. But in the end, I maybe it just – this is me seeing in the movie what I want to see in the movie and what I want to see in the movie is him – successfully killing tyler yeah and that, healing that that really horrible side of himself and in that moment having a bit of healing as yeah you said. at and, least and getting on the right path that's it moving forward who knows where this is going to go from there but at least they are standing there holding hands together and they're going to go off together and deal with it as best that they can i really liked edward norton This time as well, I liked him in 99, but I do think he manages that tone really well. I mentioned how much humor I noticed this time. I think he really brings that out, including, and this gets back to the whole masculinity idea how absurd it is i don't think in 99 i really tapped into it the way i do here how absurd it is when for example after he's had his first taste of fight club maybe it's even just after getting into the fight with tyler and they haven't even really started things yet and he's at work and he walks by that guy and he's like i got in everybody's hostile little face yes these are bruises from fighting yes i'm comfortable with that i am enlightened <laughs> and he's just he's such a loser honestly he's such a loser and i think but so snotty about that's it. it he's so snotty and smug and that is meant to be funny we We are meant, in my opinion, to to want to mock him in that moment for the way he thinks he's so enlightened.
2: Yeah, I I think we are. I think we're supposed to to see that he's silly, even as there's a small part of the freedom he experiences that we recognize. Mm -hmm. Boy, uh, it would be nice to not have to follow all of these inane rules that society places upon us. And. That we've already – that we know if you follow those rules, you're not going to get what's been promised, right? I think that's one of the underlying social critiques that has legitimacy. And so when we see a guy bucking against that, uh, it's appealing. But yeah, yeah, Norton balances it with – see, see Pitt just gets to go all in on that's that it. and make it completely appealing. Norton has the harder job of balancing that with also revealing that as legitimate as his gripes are, he's still being a little ass about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I got right
1: in everyone's hostile little face. Yes, these are bruises from fighting. Yes, I'm comfortable with that. I am enlightened. And so where were you on Pitt then? I'm going to spend time talking about in our top five, but I want to hear where you are on Pitt. Well, in this you movie. know what was really interesting to me was thinking about Pitt as Tyler Durden after having recently really thought about Pitt in the assassination of Jesse James by the coward, Robert Ford. We did that sacred cow just a few months ago, I think here on the show, because what did occur to me is the way Jesse and Tyler, the Jesse we get in that film, certainly. And Tyler Durden here are both inventions. They're both in their own way, mythical figures created by smaller men who need someone to not just emulate, but actually embody. That's what we see in Bob Ford and Jesse James. And, Tyler is all charisma all the time. He's this masculine ideal, probably the masculine ideal that Bob Ford dreamed about meeting someday and doesn't get when he actually gets to know Jesse James, because unlike Tyler, Jesse James. Is real. In fact, that's his problem. He's too real. He's too haunted by his actions, by his own cowardice, by his betrayals, his own betrayals of others. And we talked about it. I really appreciated that part of the movie in particular and that part of Pitt's performance in particular. He really captures that that sense of being haunted and that sense of sadness. And here it really is fun to watch him do the complete opposite here. He captures just the exuberance, the nonstop exuberance of getting to do whatever you want, being a total provocateur and having nothing to lose. That's the thing. He has nothing to lose moment to moment. And I do think Pitt here as Tyler Durden is electric, but don't think I didn't notice. I think it's the second scene. Remember how they meet on the plane and Tyler gets up and goes and then, the apartment the condo or whatever blows up and he calls him on the the phone phone.
2: what do you hear adam (laughs) what do you you hear hear i'm doing
1: hello who's this tyler durden has to be eating cereal or something (laughs) so loudly it's like it's like he's in the room with you even though he's on the other line of a payphone I almost had to shut the movie off, but thank God there hey, were no more oral fixations throughout the rest of the film.
2: If if Brad Pitt has to eat three bags of Cheetos on screen to get this kind of performance out of him, I'm all for it because okay. he is fantastic <laughs> here. I, I, yeah. Funny is key. You mentioned that. I, I will talk about that more when we get to our top five list. How about some of the formal details here? Because few other movies look exactly like Fight Club. I'll... I'll Get a little detail in the top five in that as well. But the cinematography by mm-hmm. Jeff Cronin with is just it, – it, everything is dank and everyone is lit except for Tyler so that they look like they've been up. This is before they even really start getting beaten up. Mm-hmm. They look like they've been up for a week straight and also the little tricks. I mean if this is a movie that's going to play tricks on you yeah, pretty much throughout – the little touches of like inserting, I think it's the image
1: of Pitt every yeah. once in a while, yeah. right? That we see before
2: yep. before we see Tyler mm-hmm.
1: himself on screen, which then matches that idea of Pitt splicing images into the film, the as porn well. images in into the
2: films, right? Perfect, perfect callback. But I remember watching that in the theater in '99, and 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 just like wait, yeah. What? what? Wait, I think it's – and of course, thankfully, it does explain it later, so you mm-hmm. can kind of confirm, yes, I was seeing that. But there's a lot of stuff like that going on where you're never quite sure where to stand in Fight Club
1: thematically or visually. Mm-hmm. And obviously, those those two things are purposeful and of a piece. Absolutely, and we definitely will get into a lot more of the form, if not – So much about Fight Club, though it just might make one of our lists. We'll definitely get into a larger discussion of the elements that make Fincher unique as a filmmaker. This is the point where our producer wants us to weigh in, as he always does with these kind of sacred cow reviews. On whether or not this movie should go into the film-spotting pantheon, he has written here in my notes, hashtag hell nah. Well, I mean, Sam has the keys, doesn't he? This is true. So I don't don't really see that Fight Club has a shot. It should. No. no. It
2: absolutely should. It should definitely be in consideration. Not just because I like it, but because of its cult status and because it's part of that trio of Mm. mind-blowing movies from 99. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, no matter how you feel about it, that this is a landmark film. And you and I both really like it.
1: We do. But – I'm just Sam's not got ready to anoint it. And yes, Sam has the keys. So we will see how that plays out. Fight club is currently available to rent on most platforms. Maybe skip looking for the VHS copy at your local blockbuster. I don't think it's going to play. You can email us. We'd love to hear your responses to the film feedback at filmspotting.net, And just a little bit more background about this nine from 99 series. That was of course the third film in the series. That means we have six more the five other films that are definitely scheduled are The Blair Witch Project, Eyes Wide Shut, American Beauty, Magnolia, and The Phantom Menace coming out in conjunction with the release of Star Wars Episode Nine. So those are pretty much going to follow every month starting in August. It'll take us from August through December. We do have a hole in July, and we thought that maybe here at the end of June with Toy Story 4 opening, that Toy Story 2 was going to be that other review. And we just kind of collectively decided that as good as that movie is, it maybe didn't really warrant a revisit, a reconsideration, the same way all of these other films do. So we've opened it up. On our 9 from 99 page, which you can visit by going to filmspotting.net slash 9 from 99, you can vote in a poll and decide which 99 film that isn't one of the ones I've mentioned already, we will discuss on an episode in July. Again, filmspotting.net slash 9 from 99 up next will listeners save me from
2: rocket man or curse me with it we'll have results of the film spotting poll asking what we should review on an upcoming episode then it's our top five david fincher scenes stay with us
0: In this peaceful town, on these quiet streets, something terrifying, something horrifying is coming. Excuse me, we're closed. Get away from me!
1: The trailer there for Jim Jarmish's new zombie comedy, The Dead Don't Die. It opens in limited release next weekend, and it is the film we plan to review on next week's show. The big draw beyond Jarmusch is the
2: cast. In fact, the promotion of the movie has largely focused on that cast. There's a poster making the claim it's the greatest zombie cast ever disassembled. Get Tough it. to argue with. Look at this. Bill Murray, Tilda Swinton, Adam Driver, Chloe Sevigny, Steve Buscemi, Rosie Perez, Danny
1: Glover, And Tom Waits. Of course, Tom Waits is going to round out the ensemble there of that Jarmusch film. It debuted in May at the Cannes Film Festival. We will have a bit more on Cannes in a moment. The early reception to The Dead Don't Die is not great, but it's Jarmusch and that cast, as we said, is wonderful. I know you've seen it already, so we do think it's a film worth seeing and talking about.
2: Yeah, I I won't show my cards, but I will say I think expectations maybe have a little bit to play with that reaction, because whether I went for it or didn't, it was not exactly what I thought I was getting okay. into. So, well, and
1: I think it'll be really worth talking about. Good to know. Along with that review, we do have an interview scheduled with the director and star of a movie we've been really excited about since it was put on our radar back During the sundance film festival in january it's called the last black man in san francisco joe talbot and jimmy falls the pair that will be in town to talk about that film with me a film that at least in theory neither of us have seen it yet but in theory could be a contender for the film spotting golden brick our annual award that goes to the overlook movie of the year a movie that's kind of flying under the radar not getting a wide release now I mentioned that The Dead Don't Die is scheduled to be our review, Josh, because even though you have seen it, my only opportunity to see it before we tape will be Monday night, June 10th. And that happens to also be the night in the exact time that one of my favorite films, Trust by Hal Hartley, starring Adrian Shelley and Martin Donovan, is going to be playing at the Music Box here in Chicago. It's a new 35 millimeter print commissioned by the Chicago Film Society. So not only are you going to get to see a wonderful new film print, but you're going to get to see it on the big screen, not on the little TV I had, probably a VHS copy, not even a DVD when I was in film school and watched Hal Hartley's Trust for the first time, but a tremendously influential film on me. I've talked about it a few times here on the show. I think I had it maybe as my number one overlooked film of the 90s when we did that top five. So I'm going to be watching Trust on the big screen. I don't know who's going to be here talking about Jarmusch with you. Yeah, I was going to say, kind of a
2: boring show if you're just going to come back and talk about Trust, and I sit here and listen. do that. And I'll talk about Dead Don't Die, and you sit there and listen. It works for me. Uh, I don't know. It it works. works for me. I don't think so. Can I give you another Music Box sure. recommendation, though, while we're doing this? Something that's opening a little earlier than that trust screening. June 7 is Under the Silver Lake,
1: a movie So basically, that, the day the show is coming out, Yeah, yeah. when it comes out on Friday, exactly. for those people who are listening, Under the Silver Lake opens at the Music Box. We'll have at least a week run, and this is one that's been
2: on our radar. One of these that we heard about, we're excited about, largely because of the filmmaker, David Robert Mitchell. He made It Follows, and took a while to come out. Has finally Finally made its way through theaters, streamed, and the Music Box is now getting a chance to show it on their screens. I think you should check it out. It's a lot of fun. I'm going to throw some titles at you, and this will give you an idea exactly what you're getting into. The Long Goodbye, the Altman mm. film, The Big Lebowski, Shane Black's The Nice Guys, okay, and of course, most prominently, probably Paul Thomas Anderson's adaptation of the Thomas Pynchon novel. Inherent vice. I'm a big fan of all of those films. Yeah. So you'd probably like this. Andrew Garfield stars here as this East L.A. burnout who he gets drawn into this weird world of codes and clues and conspiracies uh, when a woman played by Riley Keogh in his apartment complex goes missing What does this add that those other titles uh, I mentioned don't have or what's distinct? Well, you know, Mitchell is very clever with the camera as he was in It Follows, and here he gives it a real wooziness to capture this story. But for me, it was Garfield. I've kind of been loved him when I first saw him in Mm -hmm. a couple of things, and then the Spider-Man stuff came and kind of faded on him a little bit. He hasn't been this fun in a long time. I don't think he's ever been this funny, but he's also very sleazy. This guy just – you can smell him, and not just because the characters (laughs) reference it a lot. He does get sprayed by a skunk at one point, but even before that, you can smell this guy, Uh, and you kind of feel bad for him, too. Things get sleazy. I would say – None of this means anything, but <laughs> the movie is also very much about meaninglessness. Yeah, right. If that That's makes what I sense. Understand about and it, so, so that works. If that sounds good to you, you've got at least a week if you're in the Chicago
1: area to check it out at the music box. It's under the Silver Lake. Yeah. And obviously I encourage you if you're in the area to go see it at the music box because you should just be going to the music box anyway. But- for those of you who maybe don't have that chance, it is, I believe, still available on demand. So a few different ways you can see Under the Silver Lake, and it is a movie I've been meaning to catch up with. Now, it's funny that you mention all those titles, and you didn't mention the one title that our friends at our sister podcast the next picture show paired it with. They talked about yeah, under the Silver right. Lake what in conjunction with Chinatown. Oh it yeah, was part sure. Of the twisty sure. mysteries. So if you want to check that out, that's available at dot or wherever you get your podcasts. And right now they've got a really good one going. They are pairing John Wick three with Walter Hills, The Warriors. One of my top ten favorite films of nineteen seventy nine. Recently did that list on the show. It's part two of their escapes from New York pairing. So great podcast if you aren't already a subscriber the next picture show that's kind of the mo they pick a current movie and find an older film that kind of shapes our reaction to it and maybe even had a direct influence on the new movie the next picture show drops every tuesday at midnight and we are asking for your help occasionally we do this over at filmspotting.net you just go to filmspotting.net survey simple as that filmspotting.net survey i promise you that it will take about 60 seconds to fill out maybe two minutes tops. And we're just looking for some feedback about the next picture show. Two questions, maybe three is all we're asking here in the survey. Again, filmspotting.net slash survey, we would really appreciate it also at filmspotting.net on our events page you can enter to win free movie passes we can't give away free passes to these music box screenings but that doesn't mean we don't have free passes to give away and one of those films is a new film called 5b it's described as a fresh take on the hiv aids crisis it focuses on the heartfelt humanity of a few individuals at a time when it was needed most i believe it opens on friday june 14th josh and on wednesday june 12th at 7 p.m. is an advanced screening so again filmspotting.net Just click on the events page and you can enter to see that movie for free before it comes out.
2: A little bit later in June, June 23, as a matter of fact, we're going to be having a film spotting meetup out in L.A. I'll be on family vacation, so looking forward to meeting up with listeners there. 8 p.m. Sunday, June 23, we'll be at the Firestone Walker Brewing Company. That's in Marina del Rey. Now, have you got them to set aside a separate room? Well, I I, I need to make that phone call because we've already got uh, a little more than 20 people who have RSVP'd. So good size, not record-breaking yet for ones that I've been at. I Mm -hmm. think Seattle still holds that record. Um, But we may get a bunch more folks between now and June 23. So I'm going to give them a call. If you want to RSVP, get the details, get that address again, filmspotting.net
1: slash events. I've done an LA meetup before. yeah, And I think the last one was maybe five or six years ago. And I think there were maybe eight people there. Well you you just do. I'm not I'm not hurt. I'm i you fine. send
2: out select private this. invites, you know, to yeah. to uh, to only the golden few. Yeah. I'm more a man of the people, Adam, so anybody can come. Exactly. You, if you don't even listen to this show, you won't be hearing this, but you can come too. Yeah, Josh will buy you free beer. <laughs> that tends to bring him out. All right. While well, I've got the mic here, real quick, I want to give a plug for the Think Christian podcast part of my day job we explore faith and pop culture fandom i know a bunch of film spotting listeners have also joined me over there it's been great to hear from them why am i mentioning it now because and adam i think this was a request yeah, i said but i needed is... <laughs> to hear you reckon with this film in a faith-based way yeah see we we serve the listeners on the thing christian podcast too we're talking about hail satan i liked it i really Really interesting Not as much theology as I hoped, and that's maybe one of the things we talk about. We have a theme for each of our episodes, and the theme for that show is you are what you worship. So Mm -hmm. we dig into a little bit how Hail Satan touches on that, and we also talk about the Sunday services that Kanye West has been having, including the one he had Easter morning at Coachella. So again, that's the Think Christian podcast. If any of that sounds interesting to you, we don't hit movies all the time, fairly frequently, but film spotting listeners probably would be interested to check it out. You can find it wherever you find
1: any of this stuff. So as long as we're talking about side projects, I do feel compelled to note that if we have any listeners in my old stomping grounds, the central Iowa area, about a month from now, if you have nothing going on exciting over... Just July 4th weekend. It's Friday, July 5th. The band. Not just the band, but the bands. I'm pulling double duty. My college band is opening up for my high school band. Wait a minute. You're opening up for yourself. I am. My college band. I don't think I need to say anything else. My college band is opening up for my high school band. So this is basically just. This is too perfect. An exercise in my own vanity. (laughs) And if you want to come out and witness that, come out and see my college band where we're going to play original songs. Of course, original as of 20 years ago when we were in college and a few fun covers and then watch my junior high and high school band play a lot of the songs that were popular when we were in junior high and high school. It's a good time. It's Central Park, Grinnell, Iowa. Great little amphitheater. Nice little park. Great beer garden. It's there Friday night again. July 5th, so you can come out and watch me play. Will Tyler Durden be at the after party? <laughs> Only in my dreams. The man. way this thing is going, I think he <laughs> Only might. Only in my dreams. Now, one quick correction while we're doing just a little bit of fun notes and housekeeping here. Someone did write in, and I apologize, I don't have it in front of me, but someone pointed out that I did mistakenly say during our book smart review, and I knew it as I was saying it. Don't you hate it when that happens? When you're saying something and you go, that doesn't sound quite right, mm-hmm. but instead of stopping to actually it's, check you just you just plow ahead and i said that ladybird this was during our book smart review i said yeah. the ladybird was set in 1992 it's set in 2002 so my point my okay. point still applies i was talking about it as kind of a period piece it, yes. it absolutely is yes. in a very different period it was you know 16 years ago or whatever 17 years ago but Nevertheless, not the 90s. It's 2002. Wanted to throw that out
0: there.
2: Duly noted. Let's get to a note we received from Wade McCormick in Kansas City, Missouri. Hi, Adam and Josh. I was surprised not to hear more about the Cannes Film Festival on last week's show. With the festival wrapping up last week and the awards being handed out, it seems to have been one of the best-received festivals in recent years, with lots of big names and exciting new directors. Josh did mention Celine Sciamma's new film, which won the Best Screenplay Award. And yes, Sciamma is the writer and director of 24, 14s girlhood that made my list of the top five female friendship movies. Wade continues, there were also new films from Tarantino, Malick, Almodovar, and Robert Eggers, among others, and Bong Joon-ho made history as the first Korean director to win the Palme d'Or with Parasite. Wade continues, even the bad films seemed worth talking about. For example, David Ehrlich's review of Mektoub My Love, Intermezzo from Abdelatif Kashish, the director of Blue is the Warmest Color, is something
1: everyone should read. So I saw this take hold on Twitter. Yeah, I At did least film Twitter, right? And... Yeah, you caught it too. In his letterbox entry, he wrote, "No filmmaker has ever loved anything as much as Abdulatif Kashish loves butts. Well, it's more, apparently like well, three hours of butts." <laughs> and it wasn't just David Erlich saying that. So your mileage may vary <laughs> in terms of your response to that film if you do ever see Mech to My Love Intermezzo. So it's true that this was a bit of an oversight. We don't devote a lot of time to this, though we have in years past when Michael Phillips from the Tribune has gone to Cannes. Yeah, He'll often come we talk on. talk to people. Or, a two later, or we'll talk to other people and get some news about it or get their sense of the festival. But we overlooked it on our last show. Might as well acknowledge a few of the winners here. The can jury was headed up by Alejandro Gonzalez and Yari A great jury overall. El Fanning, Kelly Reichert, Alice Rohrwacher, who made Happy is Lazaro, Yorgos Lanthimos, Robin Campillo, who made BPM Beats Per Minute a few years ago. Really good film. And Pavel Pavlikovsky, who is, of course, the filmmaker behind Ida and last year's Cold War. They ended up giving the Palme d'Or, as you heard Wade say, to Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, the director of Snowpiercer and Okja and Mother and the host, among others. It's Build is a dark comedy about class tensions in South Korea, and it is scheduled to open in New York and L.A. on October 11th. Look forward to it opening here. In Chicago, the second place prize, the Grand Prix, went to Matty Diop's Atlantics Best Director. That prize went to Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne for the somewhat controversial, from what I've read, The Young Ahmed. And how about Antonio Banderas? Not winning for Pain and Gain, your beloved Pain and Gain, Josh. But oh, if only. Pain and Glory, which is the new Almodovar film about a director remembering his past. Also, Malik, Terrence Malik had a new film there called A Hidden Life, along with Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And Alyssa Wilkinson, who everyone should be reading and following on Twitter, she did her best-of-can report for Vox. We'll link to it in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. And she said of Malick's A Hidden Life that it's his most overtly political film and also one of his most religious, urgent, and sometimes even uncomfortable. Sounds like we are in for that. She also dug the new one from the witch director Robert Eggers. It's called The Lighthouse, and it stars Willem Dafoe and, of course, the newly announced Batman, Robert Pattinson. Again, we'll link to Alyssa's article in the show notes if you're curious about more of those films and her reaction to them. But right now, we need to have a little bit of fun with Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of last week's Massacre. I want to thank you for covering up for me. You're a real pal. Oh, it's nothing. I, uh, I just thought that us girls
0: should stick together.
1: So the beauty of me going through the mailbag... And pulling these responses. Does mm-hmm. I get to focus on ones like Alex Lancer in Janesville, Wisconsin, who said, Adam, don't let Josh give you any crap. You nailed it. <laughs> okay. meanwhile, meanwhile, multiple people wrote in <laughs> asking how it is because they knew this movie. They recognized it. Yeah. And they never knew that Gollum <laughs> was a character in this film. <laughs> hey, who knew indeed? Well, I. I have played Gollum in the past.
2: And the truth is, once you've played Gollum, there's always a little part of them in you. <laughs> okay. So it's you never know when it's going to come out. Man. I, for the record, I think you did a credible impression. My yeah. quibble. My quibble is if you were playing the scene. I mean, we have high standards here. Mm. This isn't just like an impression comedy act. Oh, so. I wish I had known that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so next time, try to, you know. Yeah. If you know what film we just massacred, and apparently there's some real integrity to these scenes I'm discovering, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is this Monday, June 12th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries, and then
2: we'll announce it on next week's show.
3: She should be dead. Did you hear what the
0: kids are calling you? Phoenix. Phoenix. Hello, Jean. Who are you? The better question is, who are you?
1: Yes, who or what are you, Dark Phoenix. The reviews have started to come out. (laughs) I've seen a few of them actually some people have been kind of begrudgingly favorable on the film and i've also seen some really harsh takedowns yeah that, those are the only ones i've seen i'm afraid this is the final film in the x-men series before it becomes the property of marvel studios or so my notes tell me as as we all will at some <laughs> point in our lives that's true part of the x-men first class timeline you are keeping up i know you have a diagram on the wall here that timeline with james mcavoy and my guy michael fassbender as professor x and magneto dark phoenix does open this weekend it was was one of the options we gave you a couple weeks back in the film spotting poll. We weren't sure what movie we should discuss. Obviously, this poll question kind of irrelevant because we ended up focusing on Fight Club, that nine from ninety nine review that you just heard and our top five David Fincher scenes. But still, it's always fun to kind of just check the temperature on film spotting listeners with some of these movies that are coming out. So we asked you simply, what movie should we review on this episode, episode seven thirty two? Your options were Dark Phoenix. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Late Night, which stars Emma Thompson and co-stars Mindy Kaling, who also wrote it. Now, this movie actually got moved a week. It's opening here in Chicago on June 14th, so not really an option anyway. Or we could talk about Ma, the horror thriller starring Octavia Spencer. Or finally, yes, it could be Rocket Man. (laughs) Stop doing that, please. Which do you hate more, talk of Rocket Man or me saying it that way?
2: Um, definitely you saying it that way. Okay. All right, so who won this thing? Well, Dark Phoenix was last, only 9% of the vote listeners must have smelled something there. Ma, which I'm actually interested in, came in second to last place with 18% of the vote. 21% of the vote went to Godzilla, 24% went to Late Night, which means yes indeed
1: for reasons I'm suspicious of, Rocket Man won. of the vote. Well, let's hear some of those reasons, maybe. Ben Haworth writes in, I would totally pick Rocket Man, even if it wasn't for Josh's utter frustration and lack of interest in the film. But beyond that, I actually am shocked that I'm excited for this movie, despite despising the awful and problematic Bohemian Rhapsody, which was mostly directed by the same director as Rocketman, Dexter Fletcher. However, there are enough factors that have me interested. For one, the lead, Taron Egerton, can actually sing and looks the part. Also, many have noted that it's less a biopic and more a straight-up musical. I'll admit that's what intrigues me. And most important for me, this film, Ben says, is R-rated with explicit queer love scenes, something desperately missing and so poorly handled in Bohemian Rhapsody. So I think Rocketman is unique enough for you guys to discuss it, or at the very least, I get some top-tier Larson grumbles as he reads the poll results. You've gotten plenty of those, Ben. How about this nonsense from Will Collins?
2: I've never voted out of cruelty before until now. Josh's sheer disgust of the very idea of an Elton John biopic was just too entertaining for me not to force him to watch it. If
1: he loves it, it'll be great radio. If he hates it, it'll be even better radio. Yeah. That's not fair. I agree. Melissa Koselko. I hope I said that right, Melissa. How and why did this happen? Does the hashtag down with the tyranny of Josh movement really has so much sway over film spotting polls. I mean, we all are wearing our T-shirts. Join me in the resistance to fight off those of you that are threatening to force us all to endure a review of Rocket Man or Godzilla over Ma or Late Night. Leave the hate for Josh out of it and remember your love for movies. Thank you, Melissa. Your
2: love for movies. Yes, what's really at stake here. Melissa
1: bringing us all together.
2: Steve Bowman said, while I'm intrigued by Rocket Man, it's still another unnecessary musical biopic right on the heels of the vastly underwhelming Bohemian Rhapsody. Late Night, on the other hand, has some serious female talent and looks like it will be tackling a comedic story with a refreshing amount of gravitas, if the trailers are to be believed. Emma Thompson rarely
1: disappoints, and Mindy Kaling is one of comedy's unfairly underrated voices. We could have gone this route. G.S. wrote in, the only right answer to this question is Ma, if only because it gives Octavia Spencer her first solo lead role in a movie ever it also looks hilarious on premise alone i haven't actually seen the overall response to this film any of the rotten tomato scores if you will but i have heard from a few people that unfortunately ma's a bit of a disappointment
2: yeah i haven't seen quite as negative a take as i have on dark phoenix but mm-hmm. it hasn't been great one more note here from john demsky who wants us to go in a completely different direction better yet Review Olivier non nonfiction and dedicate the episode to Asseas, pair it with a Romare film, and discuss the best anti-blockbusters, films of understatement, films that are poetic and moving despite their lack of both explosions and
1: or tragedies. So, John, you're hired to replace Sam as film spotting producer because that sounds like a great show. And I shouldn't say this out loud because I'm a fan of Asseas' work. I'm intrigued by nonfiction. Really want to see it, especially because it stars the amazing Juliette Binoche, and I even had a chance to watch it via screener for the past two weeks. But I've had to fit in all these other movies we decided to talk about, and I haven't seen it yet. So if you've seen it, I'd love to hear your thoughts on nonfiction. But it's one I do hope to catch up with before we do our top five films of the year so far in the next three or four weeks. We have a new poll question that is looking ahead a couple of weeks to our Toy Story 4 review. It comes out June 21st. Tragically, I know you feel this way, Josh. You're not going to be present for that review. Yeah. I do. I hate it, especially because the top five you're talking about is Toy Story
2: Moments slash Scenes, mm-hmm. which I would absolutely love to do. I, I don't know why I'm not planning my family vacations around movie release dates. I've got to get my priorities mm-hmm. straight, I guess. You do.
1: That's, that's what's getting in the way. I'll be on vacation. I have a great compromise. You do your list. Take all the notes. Send it, <laughs> send it to it me. To you. <laughs> and I will, with enthusiasm, make them my picks. No, I think people would still know. They'd see through it. Okay. Our question is about your favorite voice work in the series. Obviously, a ton of memorable characters and voices over three films, but we're giving you only three options. And these are what we've agreed are the three key non-Woody characters in each of the three films. Maybe a little bit out of balance if you consider the prominent role that this first candidate plays not only in the first Toy Story movie, but in all of the films. Nevertheless, we didn't want to include Woody slash Tom Hanks. And we asked, what is your favorite non-Woody voice performance? Tim Allen's Buzz Lightyear, Joan Cusack's Jesse in Toy Story 2, or Ned Beatty's Lotso Hug and Bear in Toy Story 3. And if you think we missed the boat completely and overlooked your favorite, you can select other and write in your candidate. Josh, what do you think of these options? Is one of those a clear winner for you? Yeah, it's really hard to vote against Buzz. I mean, and not not just
2: because of the screen time that he gets, but that is a great – voice performance bringing the self-delusion and then the humility and a character that changes quite a bit over the arc of a couple of films. So hard not to vote against that one, but I do love me some Lotso Hug and Bear. Oh, I, do I too. mean, that is, we did picks our voices Something or like supporting that. characters are a top
1: five at some point. And I know he was pretty high up on that list for me. It's a great performance. Yeah. All three of them are really good right now. I would probably lean to Joan Cusack's Jesse in Toy Story 2, but you really can't go wrong. Maybe not surprising to see Alan's buzz in the lead so far but it's very early in the voting we would love to hear your pick of course you can also leave us a comment we just might read it on air if you do that we'd love to know where you're listening from you can vote at filmspotting.net want to get some food
0: i'm sorry you are not sufficiently impressed with my education
1: i'm sorry i don't have a robot so we're
3: even i
0: think we should just be friends i don't want friends I was just being polite. I have no intention of
3: being friends with you. I'm under some pressure right now from my OS class, and if we could just order some food, I think we should.
0: Okay, You are probably going to be a very successful computer person, but you're going to go through life thinking that girls don't like you because you're a nerd. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true. It'll be because you're an asshole. Mm -hmm.
1: That great opening for The Social Network with Jesse Eisenberg and Rooney Mara gets us into our top five, tying in with our discussion of Fight Club earlier, our top five David Fincher scenes. And not only is that just a great clip to play as a transition, but I think it does qualify as one of those so-called greatest hits, Josh. That was something you said earlier in the show, something you said to me over the weekend, that that's a route you could go with Fincher. And I know that everyone listening, especially if they're fans of his work, as they hear me rattle these five choices off, they may say, well, no, I'd come up with five that are entirely different. I don't think that's true. I think almost everybody listening will at least agree that two or three of these kind of qualify as the, the movies or the scenes that if that, Academy montage was playing, and they could only play five clips from Fincher movies. At least some of these would be in the mix. That opening breakup we just heard. What's in the box? The ending of Seven. I think those two are one and two, depending on your order. Came up a lot on social media. Indeed, this is based on looking at a lot of lists, and also as you just said, all that feedback from our listeners on social media. The third greatest hit. I am going to withhold because I think it's going to make your list, Josh. Okay, and deservedly so. Four, another scene from The Social Network, the scene near the end, Eduardo's betrayal, the blow up at Facebook when he confronts Mark Zuckerberg about his shares being diluted and really those cuts back to the deposition. And we see how that friendship ultimately dissolves. And in fifth place, a Fincher greatest hit, I've got the cool girl monologue from Gone Girl, Rosamund Pike in that scene. So I put that list together to acknowledge them, all great choices, but I did try to make this hard on myself anyway and put those away. They're kind of in a penalty box, not eligible for my list, and they're actually joining two others in the penalty box. The Hurdy-Gurdy Man opening from Zodiac came up on our top five classic rock scenes, episode 684, and the ending to the movie The Game was one of my top five religious experiences at the movies. That was episode 638. So those scenes have gotten a little bit of love here recently on the show, decided to put them away. Believe it or not, still so many great ones to choose from. How did you approach the list?
2: Well, I did set aside the greatest hits while acknowledging that there are very good reasons those come to mind first. And it takes a filmmaker of Fincher's talent to to be able to come up with filmography that has those sorts of moments. That's why we're doing a list like this. But I wanted to really think about what is a David Fincher movie because he's someone I think you're a much bigger fan of than I am, though I like – Just about all of his films, there's only a handful that I have issues with, but I never really sat down and and thought about what makes a Fincher movie. Not only what is it about, but what does it look like? How does it move? Mm -hmm. What does it smell like? And I say smell because what I arrived at, sitting with his filmography, is that Fincher is, for me, above all else, he's a chronicler of rot of moral rot, of physical Mm. rot, of societal rot. And I just kept seeing that over and over and over in these scenes I was revisiting. So for me, the best of his scenes evoke this, uh, this sense of rot at the heart of the human experience. Sometimes it's literal and visceral and terrifying, and sometimes it's in more existential ways that implicate the viewer as well. Now, I am going to have one outlier on my list, a non-rotten pick, but the others really
1: do explore this in a literal or metaphorical way. Okay. Well, we're actually going to have a little bit of overlap there. I didn't use the word rot in my notes, but there's definitely going to be some crossover there, though the notion of a common theme kind of running through his work isn't really going to emerge until my number one choice. Our friend, Brett Merriman, who we're actually going to hear from in a voicemail here in a little bit, we're getting the whole the whole duo on the show, the LA duo that I always hang out with Jason Eakin and Brett Merriman, he wrote in to me and said, if you're going to talk about Fincher, you have to mention this quote. And I'm really glad he texted to me. Fincher, apparently in an interview somewhere said, people will say there are a million ways to shoot a scene, but I don't think so. I think there are two maybe, and the other one is wrong. (laughs) And I really do think, especially after putting in the work on this top five, that that sums up his approach and that you can watch these scenes and it is fairly easy to imagine that you can't picture them being done any other way that he is somehow tapping into the real marrow at the core of the scene and really mining it for all it's worth. And there is that sense of, of him being methodical of precision. I would say mostly subtle though, choices are definitely being made. And I have one pick that's definitely not subtle, but overall It's clear that choices are being made, but it's never about drawing attention to the person making the choice. It's about how the choices serve the story, how they serve that ultimate audience reaction. And this is another way I was thinking about my list and how much I do appreciate Fincher as a filmmaker. If I had to pick one filmmaker to back, and really we need to make this happen, by the way, in a director's edition of Chopped. Like take chopped on the report, yeah, right. but apply it to filmmaking where you give four directors the exact same tools to work with the same exact equipment, the exact same amount of time, the same script, the same actors and said, OK, bring me the best you can do with this. The filmmaker who I think would give me the most substance, most efficiently and most effectively. I'd put Fincher up there with anybody. He's my chop champion, Josh. I can see him working under a tight deadline, a tight schedule. Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. So I mentioned Jason Eakin. You read a comment from him earlier. He sent us a voicemail about Fincher that I think is a good way to start with the director.
3: Hey, Adam and Josh. This is Jason Eakin out here in Los Angeles calling to talk to you about David Fincher. Um, As you guys talk about Fight Club and do the top five Fincher scenes, I want you to think about what makes him so special. Everybody talks about him as a master, but I want you to think about his effect that he has on the rest of his crew. Think of the music in his films. Think about his editors. Think about how they – usually he has two editors going while he's still shooting because there's so much footage. He shoots so many different setups. Think about the actors doing take after take after take. Everybody who works with Fincher, including the writers, has a story about him, about how hard he works. them. He gets every ounce of productivity, ingenuity, and creativity out of his collaborators, and none more so, in my opinion, than the social networks writer Aaron Sorkin. Can you think of another Aaron Sorkin script that doesn't only feel like an Aaron Sorkin movie? No, I can't either. He's usually the main draw. But when Fincher works with him, that changes. He he forces him to adapt. That is hard to do. Have a great show. Take care.
1: Bye. So speaking of the social network and that scene and that great dialogue, Aaron Sorkin, Jason acknowledges there, one of those great collaborators that Fincher brings out the best in. And I'm sure they bring out the best in Fincher as well. And I think that is A great preface to our top five, because certainly with all of these lists, anytime we're looking at a single director, we're talking about it in terms of David Fincher. We're going to praise David Fincher throughout. We're probably not going to be diligent about in every case acknowledging all of the collaborators. We probably couldn't make it through the top five if we tried to mention every single collaborator who made some of these scenes possible. But there's no doubt that he is working with some people at the top of their games, including, as we talked about with Fight Club, Jeff Cronowitz, the DP there worked with him on a number of films and there's two levels to that there
2: are those you can clearly identify like the screenwriters fincher one of these premier directors who is not a writer like scorsese you Mm -hmm. know is is always working with someone else's material but also the people who yes they're in the credits but the production designers and the costume designers and they all come together as well to deliver what feels exactly like a fincher scene but because of their specific touches okay let's actually get to it then your number five Fincher scene my number five this first pick is a very literal exploration of rot it's the discovery of the sloth victim in seven so this victim is the drug dealer and child molester who's been strapped to a bed by John Doe For a year, and then John Doe's been documenting his daily decay with Polaroids, and sloth is written above his bed in his apartment. So Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman in the scene, they find him. They're with some other police. They enter the apartment, and the entry itself is this masterclass in suspenseful camera work and production design. There you go. Collaborators behind both of those elements. But if you remember the scene, the ceiling is littered with those hard deodorant trees you know just hanging mm-hmm. all over so immediately you know it stinks in there for some reason and the, then the way the camera backs into the victim's bedroom as the detectives with their flashlight beams approach just kind of drawing them in
0: what the hell yeah, It's just
2: victim call an ambulance what the f- is this? be more like it also for What's instance, going on here so when you get your people out of here get the now go no one touches anything some kind of freaking wax sculpture or something once they get in there, then the camera pans along this grotesque, rotting body, and then a cop leans over and says, You got what you deserved to, well, to what he thinks is the corpse, because just when we're sort of thinking the same thing, the body lets out this gasp and he's alive. He's alive!
0: He's alive! Ah,
2: It's a jump scare. Yes. You know, a lot of times those are described as cheap. But in this case, I think it's a really convicting one. I just got
1: chills listening to you uh, recount the
2: scene. It's such a grisly scene. But I think it convicts us as viewers because we know, like those cops, this guy was scum. So just maybe we're thinking the same thing the second that he revives, and then all of a sudden he's instantly human again, and he's pitiable. I mean, he's he's revolting as well, but he's not just a corpse there anymore. So one of the many stomach-churning moments of Seven, I'm starting there. It's my number five Fincher
1: scene. There's going to be so much fun overlap with our list. It may just take a little while to get there, though we're starting with the same movie. What I do list still as my favorite David Fincher film, I also have a scene from Seven, but it's chasing John Doe. There are lots of shots in this sequence. There are lots of cuts. I'm going to spare everyone the full-on scenic analysis, but it made my list for three reasons. One is that I love it. I just find it thrilling to watch. Another is that it's unique on my list. I don't know about yours, but I'm guessing most of your picks certainly don't match this, in that it's dialogue-free. There are going to be plenty of examples of Fincher handling two or three people in a room talking better than just about anybody on my list here. But the other reason that I put it at number five is that it shows Fincher's versatility, his practicality, a flexibility when it comes to matching style and content, as opposed to it being about conforming the content to his style. I found a quote from Fincher where he said, I like to find a frame that the actor can sort of play in. Handheld has a powerful psychological stranglehold. It means something specific, and I don't want to cloud what's going on with too much meaning. So overall, in my picks, that applies. Everything Fincher just said there applies to my scenes. But this chasing John Doe scene is one where it's almost exclusively handheld. And this is the sequence where the two detectives, Somerset and Mills, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt have actually stumbled onto the killer they've been chasing. They're approaching his door. This figure approaches. It's John Doe. He opens fire as he walks toward them in the hallway, and this chase ensues. And what I love is it's all about Mills's subjective experience chasing John Doe. So the handheld camera functions to express that subjectivity. And for how kinetic it is, there's running through apartments and down fire escapes and through streets and other buildings. There's a ton of stopping and starting, Because Mills as a character and Fincher as a filmmaker, he's not doing the Hollywood version of a police chase where everything is choreographed and it's about those types of thrills. Here, what we see in Brad Pitt's performance is that he's afraid. He's chasing someone who is obviously dangerous and has a weapon. So... We'll see him stop at a window and hesitate before he looks out, and then he'll hesitate again when he looks down the stairs, and the camera hesitates with him. A couple of times he has to duck because guess what? Yeah, John Doe is firing the gun at him, and the camera jolts and moves precisely as Mills does, and there's always that kind of alignment with the camera connecting us to him and what he's experiencing in the moment. It's not necessarily all handheld. There's a few shots that I don't think qualify. And there's one kind of longer tracking shot where it does seem like as he's running across a warehouse floor that could actually be on tracks. But for the most part, it definitely is the subjective experience and it closes so beautifully. You talk about just sort of single images that when you think of David Fincher, You think of moments like this one, even though it's gray and pouring rain outside, Doe hits Mills with, I think, like a tire iron or a crowbar or something, and it knocks him to the ground, and we see Pitt crawling, and then Fincher cuts to a puddle where we see Doe walking towards Mills in slow motion in the reflection of the water only, and then when the gun comes up to Mills's head, we just see the gun in the hand come from out of the frame, and then that canted angle shot of the gun in focus. The camera kind of shooting up Doe's arm, his face is completely silhouetted. It's almost similar in some ways to the Fight Club opening shot with the gun in Edward Norton's mouth. But everything about the way Doe is portrayed in that sequence where he's always shrouded or he's always a little bit out of focus, it kind of retains that, that sense of myth that surrounds him and just how elusive he really is. There's a great example in that
2: scene, too, of setting a rule so that you can break it in an instant and it being incredibly effective. Because you're right, for most of that sequence, we're right there with Pitt's character. And then when he gets to that garbage truck mm-hmm. and we think John Doe is right around the corner, what does the camera do? It's not handheld, it kind of has this elegant swing around the yep. corner, around the hood and away a little from bit, Pitt. Right? Yeah. So that you're you're leaving him. And the yes. effect that has is he suddenly, to me, seems exceedingly vulnerable That's because it. he's he's been left alone. And then when he makes that turn around the truck too, it's a, so yeah, really, really good scene. Um, I have a non-dialogue pick as well at number four. Actually, the only one to your point on my list that doesn't really involve dialogue and it's the Henley Royal Regatta from The Social Network. This is the English rowing event where the Winklevoss twins, both played by Army Hammer, compete as part of Harvard's crew club. Now this is actually a very clean scene. There's not a lot of visual rot here, but the sequence is all about undermining this pristine masters of the universe social hierarchy, this status structure, and revealing its hollow core. Um, Because when you think about it, it's that sort of social structure that Jesse Eisenberg Zuckerberg, as a person, and Facebook as a technology, really means to disrupt. And Indeed, there is a disruption because Harvard loses this race, and it's also while in England that the Winklevi discover Facebook is expanding without them. Now, this, I think, is an example too of Fincher as the biting satirist. We talked about Fight Club in those terms a lot. This could have been filmed—you would expect this to be filmed in glorious Chariots of Fire style Mm -hmm. filmmaking, right? But he— decides instead to undercut everything. We get these exaggerated close-ups, the rower's faces, they're out of focus until they row themselves up right into the camera. Um, There's gradually frantic editing going on and he uses Edvard Grieg's increasingly frenetic in the Hall of the Mountain King on the soundtrack. Reading up on some behind-the-scenes stuff, it sounds like a lot of this sense of mania was the result of the filmmakers not having a lot of time at the Henley Regatta itself. They were running up against the release date, so had to combine some close-ups that were shot elsewhere with establishing footage from the actual race. Mm-hmm. So that that's, there's a level of disjointedness that I think does ultimately work. It's, it's undermining the elegance of this very event and that way it skewers this elitism mm-hmm. of the Winklevoss world while also,
1: you know, narratively doing the job of documenting their defeat. Yeah. No, there's no doubt that everything you described is at play, but that is one of those fun director responses when someone asks him, and I've seen some of those comments, tell us about that Henley scene and the choice with the focus, and you're expecting him to say, well, yes, I'm trying to express X, Y, and Z, and he goes, well, we really just kind of ran out of time and didn't have full access to the regatta, so, you know, I kind of had to obscure things a little bit. And then we all read into it what we want to read into it, but it absolutely works. That's why he'd be good on Chopped, right? (laughs) There you go. Makes the most out of what he's got. My number four David Fincher scene comes from a Netflix series I'm going off the grid a little bit not a film but the show Mindhunter was a huge fan of season one 10 episode series I believe they are supposedly filming season two can't wait for it to come back David Fincher is one of the executive producers of the series but he also directed the first two episodes in the series and the last two episodes I alluded to our friend Brett Merriman in L.A. being a part of this top five. I think his voicemail, even though he doesn't talk about Mindhunter explicitly, will help set up my choice.
0: Hi, Adam and Josh. It's Brett Merriman in Los Angeles calling about top five Fincher scenes. I want to go in a different direction and touch on what Fincher does better than anyone. And no one does insert shots like David Fincher. He is the master. His insert shots are alive. They have a point of view. It makes you feel something. Uh, The first one I always think of, sounds crazy, is during the rooms of Fight Club and the men are taking off their belts and cracking their knuckles. There's this shot of feet pushing shoes across the floor. And the camera moves with it. And it's a small thing, but no other director would do that. And it just creates this momentum and a feeling. And then I always also think of the shot in heaven right after the widow says the painting is upside down. And uh, you cut to a three-second establishing shot of a black office building against the city lights, and it's where a of block of light turns on, and it's foreboding, as if the building is coming alive, and it has the secrets. Um, it's wonderful. And then uh, I always think of also the girl with the dragon tattoo, which is something I do not care for. Um, I could just watch the bridging shots, those quick shots of Liz the Sounder riding her motorcycle between locations, each one shot is unique and beautiful and purely center. Um, he's my favorite, or well, one of my favorite active living directors, um, one of the smartest guys in L.A. So thanks for your time.
1: Thank you, Brett, for that. We're definitely going to talk about insert shots here in a minute. If you didn't see Mindhunter, this is the series that's about the group of FBI agents in the 70s who start what we know now as serial killer profiling. Jonathan Groff plays Holden Ford, the main character, and his partner is Bill Tench. And I was reviewing this scene to make this pick, and I'm thinking, God, his partner looks really familiar to me. I had just watched him in Fight Club. The guy who's one of the main space monkeys, the guy who's the first to say his name is Robert Paulson. Holt McAlaney, that's who plays Bill Tench. He was in Alien 3 as well, so he's obviously a guy Fincher likes to use. My scene from mindhunter is from the last episode episode 10 and it's the end of the series and i promise that i'm not really spoiling anything here if you didn't watch mindhunter you can absolutely listen to this and still enjoy every bit of this episode or any episode from the series but it all culminates with the groff character holden ford being called to visit one of the serial killers that he's been profiling in the hospital and His name is Ed Kemper, a real-life serial killer, played wonderfully in the series by Cameron Britton. Our friend Scott Tobias from The Next Picture Show recapped this show for Vulture, and he said that last masterful scene with Kemper is a splash of cold water. Holden has gotten so used to relating to serial killers that he's forgotten the threat a man like Kemper poses. When this immense monster gets up from his hospital bed and embraces him, Holden's feelings of superiority and control melt away in such a rush that he's seized by panic, fear and childlike vulnerability he encouraged this intimacy with evil and now he suddenly has to come to terms with the consequences of his actions that feeling of superiority and control and then his complacency that we see that kind of misguided sense of safety that he has is all established by Fincher's camera the whole scene is about six minutes from the point Holden walks in and He mistakenly what leads into the scene is he's kind of bragged about his work, and it's ended up in a paper. And so Kemper is confronting him about the fact that the work they've been doing is now getting attention. And Ed is this really large man. Holden knows that. Anyone who's been watching the series knows that. But he's lying in a bed. And whenever the camera cross cuts to him, it regards him the same way on the same plane at bed level. Holden walks into the room, and he's in a position of power. He's standing away from him. There's a slight low-angle tilt to the camera. It's not really Kemper's point of view explicitly, but it is his perspective because it's from that bed level, and there Brett mentioned insert shots. At one point, Fincher cuts to a pair of glasses. This is at the very beginning of the scene when Holden walks in. And the camera shows what it looks like from Kemper's perspective as he puts his glasses on and watches Holden come into focus. That sets the whole scene because almost every shot, whether it's on Holden or it's on Kemper, part of the other person is in frame. There's kind of this symbiotic relationship and you see how they are connected in what is mostly an unhealthy way. And as Holden gets more comfortable. He moves closer, and he sits in a chair next to the bed, and he basically sits down into the frame on the same level as Ed. It doesn't move to him. In this case, he moves down into the frame. And I'll just try to sum up these cuts here, but as Ed comes to dominate the conversation, we get some close-ups on his face, him reacting to Holden kind of, Giving his profile of him to him directly. And we get these great close ups both times when he asks him really pointed questions that just heighten the tension in the moment. And then we get an insert shot of a worker through a window in a room next door. It's all what Kemper is seeing from the bed and what Holden is not seeing. And then we get another shot from the end of the bed of his whole body. And we see that his legs are chained. And that reminds us of his size, it reminds us of his threat that he's chained, but it doesn't mean he's incapable of movement. And The camera is just always showing us what Ed knows and what Holden doesn't. And then when he's talking about his relationship to women, the camera tracks forward, sort of lulling us into a sense of comfort. And then the magic happens. And I don't want to go on breaking it down even further, but it's all about watching Ed, watching what's happening in the scene and his movements and his vision, directing the way the camera cuts and cueing us into things that Holden again is completely oblivious to. And in eight seconds, we get eight cuts where ed has literally reversed the power dynamic has stood up from that bed and is now standing opposite holden with no one watching he could do whatever he wants to him in this moment and fincher has the patience to sit on that two shot and that tension as ed talks for almost 20 seconds after that series of quick cuts and that whole time we as viewers like holden are just dreading whatever his next movement could be and it's all set up by how precise the camera is and how it relies on that point of view of the characters.
2: Funny thing, in the ICU there's no system to alert the guards. It's short-sighted seeing what kind of people come through. I could kill you now pretty easily. Do some interesting things before anyone showed up. Then you'd be with me in spirit. Boy, I, I mean, Fincher's serial killer movies are rough enough. Goes. I don't know if I, I know. could commit to a series, but it sounds like you, it's so will good. Will you watch season two if they do oh, season two? Can't yeah, wait. You're in. Can't okay. Wait. All right. Maybe I'll have to catch up with season one. Number three for me. Here's my exception pick that proves the rule. It comes from the least likely and most maligned film in Fincher's filmography. I'm going with something from The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I'm not the only one who loves this movie, but I might be one of maybe four or five. <laughs> yeah, It did get some support in our Fincher favorite Fincher movie poll among listeners it got a few other votes and it actually does get a positive rating on metacritic but yeah not one of his most beloved overall for me though this goes to the collaboration question that we touched on at the beginning it's one of these odd clashes of artistic sensibilities that works You have two unlikely and really seemingly opposing artistic voices that come together here. The whimsical, fable-minded screenwriter Eric Roth, at least I think of him that way because he wrote Forrest Gump. And then Fincher, whose films we've already seen, they're not the cheeriest about the human condition. Well, it turns out that this F. Scott Fitzgerald short story, it's about a man, Brad Pitt again, who's aged when born and gradually grows younger until his death. It manages to be this happy meeting place for Roth and Fincher, and it made me think a lot about AI artificial intelligence. One thing I love about that movie is the way it beautifully blends Spielberg's optimism with Kubrick's pessimism. My scene is actually Benjamin Button's opening moment. The whole film is bookended by this tale of a clockmaker whose son is killed in World War I. So he pours his sorrow into this giant clock, that is designed to run backwards. It's sort of his fruitless attempt to, you know, stop time, stop aging, stop death. Now, in the opening sequence, the clockmaker, played by Ilias Koteas, he unveils his clock, and then he talks about his wish. Let's back. I made it that way. So that perhaps the boys that we lost in the war might
0: stand and come home again.
2: Home to farm, Work, have children, to live long, full lives. Perhaps my own son might come home again. As he speaks, we see reverse-motion footage of soldiers falling in battle, getting up and running backwards. They're coming back to life and they're leaving the battlefield. We even get another shot, the clockmaker's son himself walking backwards off the train to his parents rather than going off to war. Now, like all of Benjamin Button, this is a gorgeous sequence. The sepia cinematography, there's a flickering and jittering effect going on to suggest older film footage. And of course, you know, Thematically, the clock is is just a reminder here that those things, time, aging, death, none of them can be stopped. So I guess the sequence is still about rot in a roundabout way, but it's one that tempers that by making room for compassion and empathy amidst the decay. Hmm. Now, where are you on Benjamin Button, Adam? I mean, with all this morat, yeah. mortality stuff going on, it, it seems like it
1: could be up your alley. Well, I haven't really thought about the film in a very long time, but I remember being – slightly positive on it okay i was really distressed by pitt's performance in the film at the time i was definitely the in my or the performance both, or okay both. i was in my anti-pitt phase uh, at the time that wouldn't help but i remember being blown away in fact one of my favorite performances of the year blown away by Kate blanchett yeah she's in really good. that film and quite moved by the film In the end. So does it work overall? Do I have it listed as my ninth favorite David Fincher film? Yes, I do. So a lot lower than you. But I think overall, it is probably a little bit unfairly maligned. And this might be a good time actually to point out that if you haven't visited filmspotting.net and clicked on lists, you can see all of these picks, the movies and the scenes we're talking about. And I'm pretty sure every one of your Picks is available on YouTube. Yeah. All of them, except for Mindhunter, which is on Netflix, my number four are available on YouTube. We link to those directly on the top five page. So if you want to go there and click on these scenes and kind of follow along, it will probably help as we are getting into the details of some of these scenes. You mentioned serial killers, and that does seem to be fairly common with David Fincher. I had to break up the serial killers on my top five. And actually, I forgot, I've got one more non-dialogue pick. It's the break-in scene from Panic Room, a film starring Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart as her daughter that I think is pretty good. Again, behind all my other favorite Fincher films, but a pretty decent thriller. And this is a great long take, even if it's a faked CGI long take. It's a wonderful sequence where they are spending the first night in this new brownstone and three burglars show up, though we don't know what they're after immediately. In fact, we don't know anything if you've just watched this sequence because we really only see their bodies from outside the camera moving through this house. Apparently, I think on the DVD commentary for this movie, Fincher said that he wanted to show a burglary sequence from the point of view of fish inside a fishbowl looking out and seeing the cats.
2: Okay, that's I'm so glad you included that because that was my question watching this scene is whose point of whose view? Whose point of view? Okay, is this? so because it's get, so
1: unique. I'm going to get into that a little bit, but that really does nail it. That is the absolute sensation watching this scene, though you have to think that these metaphorical fish can really move around this aquarium because they have free reign over the entire brownstone. It's a two minute, 30 second long, long take. Again, some CGI trickery involved, but the camera swoops through the entire floor plan of this brownstone and through some of the floors too, including through a keyhole and back out. It approaches every door and window just as one of the burglars checks it to see if they can get in. This is the example I mentioned at the top that is not subtle Fincher. This is definitely an ostentatious sequence drawing attention to itself, but I'd argue it's still functional because inside the house is where the whole rest of the film, the action is going to take place. It is all about this standoff. And until those three burglars are inside... There's really no reason for us to see them or to have access to their point of view. They're just these ominous figures on the outside trying to get in. And Fincher creates tension and suspense, not by quickening the pace, as you might expect, but by actually slowing it down, having this whole sequence play out in real time, gliding through the brownstone. It almost makes you complacent. That that word again, I use talking about Mindhunter, where you kind of have this false sense of comfort. And I wasn't surprised to see that IndieWire, back in 2014, put together a list of the 20 greatest, most celebrated long takes in cinema history. And they actually had this scene from Panic Room at number 20, but the writer, I think it was Jessica King, she was really reluctant to include it she wrote the technical virtuosity here is inarguable and warranted it a spot on this list alone but we'd argue it's also an example of putting form before content to a detrimental degree the house feels porous the geography malleable when it should be confining and contained and the claustrophobia of the premise is undercut by the sense established early that there is someone else already in the house the inquisitive omnipotent camera i actually think that's exactly what's great about it the house at this point shouldn't feel confined and claustrophobic. It should feel porous and spacious. And we're going to get that claustrophobia once we recognize that the threat is real and they're inside the house. And that omnipotent camera, that curious camera, that is the stand-in for us, I think, as viewers, or perhaps the fish, if you want to go the Fincher route. We, as viewers, are seeing everything that Foster and Stewart aren't aware of and we're powerless to do anything about it. And I think that's really the magic of the scene. Yeah. I love the fish
2: thing. That is, that is so perfect. I think this is increasingly distressing because one thing you do realize as it rises from level to level and follows their attempts, first they're in the front, then they go to the back Mm -hmm. they're not giving up. And eventually you realize they will find a way. That's it. Um, And you sense that early on. I think and this was so thrilling when I first saw it, first watched Panic Room. I really love Panic Room. I haven't revisited it in a long time. But I will say, I think I was a sucker for the ostentatiousness sure. in one element. When he goes, it's just like through the coffee pot handle, yes. right? It? Yes. You don't love need that. Going through on a straight line through the whole kitchen and through right. the coffee pot handle. Yes. I think you Just do, because he can. You do need it to establish the geography. It does a good job of that. But yeah, that's <laughs> that's showing off. Okay. All right. My number two pick. Well- the whole world of Fight Club. We kind of touched on this a little bit in our review. Seems to be rotting. Everything is just rotting off the walls, not even in the house that Norton and Pitt share, but really all of these bars. The visual scheme I've described before is like a stomach that's a wash in acid. You feel like you're just stuck in a place like that. The bar basements for sure have that feel. Now, my scene comes at the moment, I'd argue, this rot has caused Edward Norton's head to just cave in. Not literally, not the very ending, but the moment when Brad Pitt's alter ego wins. And I think this is the parking lot fight where Norton is trying to stop this terrorist plot to blow up a series of bank buildings. For me, this is the apex of Pitt's performance. He's so free yeah. here. I mean, that's what—that's the quality he's had throughout the film, but here he's completely free. All throughout his words, his movements, his mannerisms, he's just done whatever he wants. And, and that's what Norton wants to be, right? That's the catch here. But think about how he tosses off that fur coat in this moment. He does the jujitsu pose. He taunts Norton as he beats the crap out mm-hmm. of him. Norton, of course, wearing, I think it's like a bathrobe and he's in his boxers, yeah. just looking really pathetic. How about that moment where Pitt shoves Norton's head through the side mirror of a truck or a car and then pauses to... to I think he checks his teeth to see if there's something in it. I mean, stuff like that. This This is the best part of Pitt's performance. I also want to talk about the filmmaking, though. The dark wit. You talked about how... Fight Club struck you as funnier than Mm -hmm. you remembered it being. And there's this shot where Norton gets thrown into a ticketing machine for the parking garage. And we just get, here's an insert shot of the ticket spitting out, Pitt pulling Norton's shoe off and then kind of just pausing a minute right, and And then 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 just using it to to beat him some more. Then this trickery that we get that's revealing of the whole psychosis at play here as well. Those four cutaway shots to security camera footage showing that Norton is doing All of this to himself. I mean, it's easy, even though we know the game here, it's easy to still get caught up in the moment and think these are two guys fighting. But no, Fincher reminds us with these inserts, we see him, that one of him throwing himself down the stairs that pretty much ends the sequence. And then one more touch here is the low humming howl that's on the soundtrack. It's almost like a whine that's gradually mm-hmm. increasing. Uh, it reminded me for some reason of, of Suspiria when I was watching it this time again. And it's just, you know, the audio representation of, of Norton's unraveling psychosis. So Tyler versus Tyler, my number
1: two Fincher scene. Great choice. My number two comes from Zodiac. And this is a film that is filled with terrifying sequences. We might hear about one of them, I'm guessing, in a moment from you, Josh. But maybe in some ways the most unnerving because of how it upends your expectations. A lot of other sequences, we kind of feel like we know what's coming. and this one, we just don't. It's the Lake Berryessa killings. I think it's the second set of Zodiac killings. The man and woman who are just lying peacefully, by this crystal blue lake. And in this moment, there's no way they could ever imagine their fate. And like my scene from Mindhunter, it's all about the camera position and perspective and patience because we're immediately put at ease by their ease with each other. Her propped up on his chest, that cool blueness I mentioned, the lake, it's a perfect summer day. It's just idyllic. And then she notices a figure approaching and we only get a cut That's provoked by what she sees and even more specifically by what she can see, because we notice that her eyes are catching something and she says somebody else is here, but we don't actually get a shot of the killer immediately. Fincher delays just a couple of beats and when it does finally cut, it's from her point of view. So it's at a distance and it's even through some light weeds. So you can't really make out who or what is coming towards them. And that process actually repeats twice more as he gets closer with the camera never moving. So it never really hints that anything is truly off. It's just that little bit of hesitation before cutting to what she's seeing. So we're always reading her face and trying to make sense of what's happening, what might be approaching. This is a four-minute scene where the volume of it never gets raised. There's no yelling or violence until the very... And when they're attacked, there's never really a sense even on the part of the man that they're in any danger. There's this moment where they're talking to the Zodiac killer and she says that he's a sociology major and he corrects her.
3: Pre-law. That's right.
1: This guy in the scene. That guy. But you know what? It, it shows that you would only do that if you felt like you had absolutely no sense whatsoever that these were your final moments alive. Sure. Right? And— Throughout, there's just such an effective use of extreme close ups that he doesn't rely on. He only utilizes them when he needs them. As we get to that end of the scene in the attack, they're on the ground tied up and they're facing each other. And we finally see that she's filled with panic. He's still not. But the moment we see that there's a new perspective introduced it's when we get that extreme close-up of him looking right at her and actually looking right at us. The camera is positioned basically where her head would be. It's him looking at her, her looking back, and his calming words to her that this is all going to be okay. You know they're dead wrong before the inevitable even plays out just because of that subtle shift in the framing. I love so much of Zodiac and so many sequences, but almost the first thing I think about whenever that movie comes up is just that image of this couple by that lake on that perfect day and that black figure approaching and the absurd horror of it.
3: Okay, you all done?
2: You know, just because people are going to ask, was that thing even loaded? The man is so smug in that scene too that there's a little bit of a you got what you deserve there is. going on here. There is. You almost get a sense. The movie suggests
1: that yeah. if he just shut up, yes. Yes. the Zodiac killer might have let him Which go.
2: heightens the horror then because you're more sympathetic to her. Mm-hmm. And so when she's just as much a victim, yeah, it's, it's uh, really, really creepy. Uh, all right. I'm going to stick with Zodiac. You're right. My number one comes from Zodiac, a scene that maybe I find a little bit more... Maybe I find it creepier because nothing does end up happening, and being left in that space hmm. is more disturbing. I'm yeah, there's no resolve about, in a conventional way. There is way. no resolve when you're in the basement in Zodiac. At this point, the political cartoonist uh, Robert Gray Smith, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, he's still trying to find the Zodiac killer. He's still obsessed, and this quest has taken him to this house where he's going to meet an organist at a silent film theater. He thinks that this organist might have worked with someone at the theater who he suspects to be the killer. So they're talking. A few things start to not add up. Put Grace Smith on edge. And then comes the invitation to come down to the basement.
3: I won't, I won't take any more of your time. Why don't I just go and find out when we play that film? But that's all right. It's not a problem. They're just down in the basement. Not many people have basements in California. I do. Coming, in, Mr. Basement.
2: That's Charles Fleischer in the scene, the voice of Roger Rabbit, believe it or not. His tone in this sequence, here we are with a collaborator, crucial collaborator, so perfect. I mean, it's that un identifiable edge someone has that doesn't quite convict them, but is still troubling. You know, it doesn't break any social barriers Mm -hmm. where you can say, okay, uh, I got to get out of here. He doesn't push it that far, but something's off. Now let's talk about the camera work. The framing when he says just down in the basement is so pristine. You have Gyllenhaal in close up on the right side of the frame. Fleischer is in the rear right. He's blurry right at the basement door. And then he flips on the light just as he says basement to make himself, you know, immediately ghoulish with the light casting mm-hmm. up on him, but also gives him a stronger presence in the frame. Once they're down there, Fleischer's moving in and out of the darkness. He's checking shelves, and we hear the slight creaks, or we think we hear from above the paranoid Gyllenhaal. He asks if someone else is in the house. And once that's in, His head, you better believe it's in our head, so we can't get it out. Now, near the end of the scene, all says thanks. He begins to back out, and there's another beat involving lights here, the lights that are in the room. Just after saying, you're welcome, Fleischer pulls the cord to the light bulb above, and it leaves us in a moment. Here's Fincher's patience, which we've touched on. We're just in complete darkness for a second. It's that exact moment when you're at the bottom of the stairs in the basement and you have to flick the light and get to the top. Mm-hmm. That's the pause that he gives us there. So in a lot of ways, this is a fairly simple scene. But for me, it's definitive Fincher in its precision and also that it's set in another dingy, unsettling space. It's sort of like the basement is humanity's darkest heart. It's the, it's the place where things go to rot. Mm. So
1: I had to end up there. My number one scene from Zodiac. Yeah. One of my, I think my number one or two scariest scene in movies on episode 233. There you go. Of this show. And maybe you'll understand why I have it so high when I explain that my mom still likes to tell the story of me being about five years old. First house I ever lived in had a basement and two floors. All the bedrooms were upstairs at the very top. And one night she woke up to hearing me screaming through the vents in the floor and coming downstairs to find I'm at the bottom of the stairs in the basement. I had slept walked downstairs to the basement, woke up at the bottom of the stairs in pitch black. No. Oh, that's awful. (laughs) It really is. And yeah, we tell this story all the time and try to laugh about it, even though I'm still traumatized and don't go into basements alone. Okay. My number one, David Fincher scene. Even though I love Gone Girl, even though I love the social network, even though I very much appreciate Fight Club, I'm actually going with another scene. I'm going to bookend my list with another scene from Seven. And I think it's appropriate for me to do that because this is a Fincher list that's going to culminate with a three person confined space dialogue scene. I also already pointed out it's my favorite Fincher film, but there is this larger thematic connection to to this one, and it's the setting the example scene from Seven. It's what leads into what's in the box at the end of the film. It's where we and our detective duo here try to get inside the head of Kevin Spacey's John Doe. Somerset, as he has been throughout the whole film, is the more thoughtful and rational and calm one. Mills, Less so trying to provoke Doe, which gives John Doe the chance to launch into this polemic about the alleged innocence of his victims. And I'm going to get to the form of it, but you brought up the term rot and the way I thought of it. One current that I think is undeniable in his work, and we've certainly talked enough about serial killers and these kind of scary sequences, is the way he explores the line between righteousness and. And wickedness. And it goes well beyond just flawed heroes or so-called anti-heroes. Think about all of the genuine monsters in Fincher's work. All who believe absolutely in the virtue, or at least the necessity of their deeds. And here I won't try to fit in the only actual monster from Alien 3, but we have John Doe, the serial killers in Mindhunter, the Zodiac Killer, the Dragon Tattoo Killer. Somewhere on this line is Tyler Durden. We can work in Amy Dunn from Gone Girl. We can even work in Mark Zuckerberg. And there are others to reckon with as well. And what Fincher does in this scene, I think, is actually really bold. And it gets back to what you said, Josh, with your number five pick, is that it aligns us as the viewer with this monster. He gives Doe a platform to express his views through the way he frames him. The sequence I'm pulling out kind of begins when he says to mills innocent is that supposed to be funny after that we only get three different shots of the three men in the car and the guy with the least screen time is the guy doe is actually mainly addressing it's mills and when we do see him it's from doe's pov through the cage that's separating them we cut to somerset though three times in close-up from the front seat and Fincher is always showing him listening really attentively to Doe. He's not just dismissing John Doe like Mills has done throughout the entire film. He's actually processing and considering what he has to say. The most screen time, of course, goes to John Doe himself. Straight on shot, him sitting in the middle of the back seat. We only see him through the cage. And I remember the first few times I saw this movie, I thought, well, that's kind of clever. There's not much room, obviously, anyway, from a practical standpoint, but it's kind of clever that Fincher has created this monster, and then he never puts us directly in the back seat with him. He gives us just a little bit of distance. But watching it again this time for this list, Josh, I realized that it's actually Somerset's view of him, essentially what would be in the rearview mirror. He keeps looking up to the rearview mirror, and we cut to this straight-on shot. And that whole scene, you come to realize, is really about this unspoken dialogue that's happening between the two of them, between John Doe and Somerset. And then that the movie through them is having with us as viewers, because in this triumvirate, we see the three different ways you can approach the task of however you want to phrase it, making the world a better place. This is the question that is at the heart of this film. Somerset has recognized its futile and decided to give up and retire. Mills is young and naive enough to think he can still do it, but he's trying to do it within the restrictions of the law of, quote unquote, civilized society and John Doe here represents in the backseat the third approach, which is clean it up by whatever means necessary. He actually wants the exact same things that Mills wants, that Somerset wants. He's just willing to match the ugliness of the world to get it. And I don't think Fincher wants us to subscribe to john doe's philosophy and approach but he does want us to at least think about wrestle with it yeah think about that philosophical dilemma and to not just write him off the way mills is constantly trying to do in that end scene and throughout the whole movie
3: wait a minute i thought all you did was kill innocent people
0: innocent is that supposed to be funny an obese man A disgusting man who could barely stand up. A man who, if you saw him on the street, you'd point him out to your friends so that they could join you in mocking him. A man who, if you saw him while you were eating, you wouldn't be able to finish your meal. And after him, I picked the lawyer, and you both must have secretly been thanking me for that one. This is a man who dedicated his life to making money by lying with every breath that he could muster to keeping murderers and rapists on the streets. Murderers. A woman. Murderers, John, like a yourself. Woman. So ugly on the inside that she couldn't bear to go on living if she couldn't be beautiful on the outside. A, a drug dealer, a, a drug-dealing pederast,
1: actually.
2: No, another act of provocation on, on Fincher's part. I think that's what makes... I, Seven is a film that I liked but had issues with the first time I saw it. It was just... Which is funny to say now that how gory horror films in particular have gotten sense with torture porn and all that. But it was a lot when it mm, first yeah, came out. It's probably out.
1: tame in comparison now. It,
2: a lot of it having left revisited up to it, Yes, it is very subtle in, in a lot of ways. But I do think one of his – Hmm, I don't know middle films probably for me you've got it number one you want to do quick do you have you want to do a quick top five fincher here just the the films themselves as we've kind of
1: been dancing around it I've got fight club you've got seven at one what's after that for you well so I kind of wish you hadn't done this only because now as I actually look at my list I have Zodiac at number one but I can explain okay I can explain insofar as I think that was me when I formed that list on Letterboxd going not with my favorite which is seven, but giving Zodiac the slight edge as a better representation of cinema or something profound. Well, it's it's the definitely better film, I, the more mature film. Yeah, I would but say seven's my favorite venture. Okay. Okay. So it's I've got those most, one and two. I would think that's the critical consensus. Zodiac at number one. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. my one and two. I've got social network at three. I've got gone girl at four fight club at five.
2: Okay. So fight club, as I said, number one for me, Benjamin Button is slides in there. at Number two hmm. panic room, as I said, love it. And Zodiac comes in for me at
1: four with the social network rounding it out. Okay. So some overlap there and some overlap, at least thematically and in terms of form with our top five David Fincher scenes. Again, we will put that entire list, all of our choices over at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists. There will be links to our picks to watch them, dissect them as you wish. And I will also include those so-called Fincher greatest hits we'd love to hear your picks or any other thoughts about the show you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net and that is our show there's a whole lot more on our website
2: filmspotting.net in the show archives you can find reviews interviews and top fives going all the way back to 2005 the website is also where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We are asking for your favorite non woody Toy Story voice performance. If you want to get your hands on some film spotting merch, t shirts, other such stuff, I think Debbie may have ordered film spotting onesies for the two new babies in the film spotting mm. family.
1: Yeah, so if onesies, if you need some film spotting onesies, you know where you can get them. I'm looking at you befuddled only because I want to point out to our listeners that in the film spotting family, neither me nor you nor Sam. Has a new baby at home.
2: Okay, we should... <laughs> Extend the so members of the FilmSpotting
1: family. Tyler Green... Yes. ...our live event producer... Yes. ...and Joe Dassault. Yes, one of our other producers. Producers both. at
2: WBZ, both new dads. Beautiful new babies at yes, home. Yes, indeed. All right, that's at filmspotting.net slash shop for those onesies. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and on Twitter, Adam is at filmspotting. I'm at Larson on film. And to subscribe to the weekly
1: FilmSpotting newsletter, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend... The Secret Life of Pets 2 and Dark Phoenix. Next week on the show, we will not be discussing either of those films. Josh is going to talk about Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die. I'm going to go see Hal Hartley's Trust in the music oh, box. Boy. It'll be a great show. And my scheduled interview with Joe Talbot and Jimmy Falls, who are two of the talents behind the new film The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Film Spotting
2: is produced by Golden Joe Disseau and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. We'd also like to thank the Communication Arts Department at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois, which provided the recording space for this episode. Learn more at trnty.edu. For Film
1: Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
0: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.